Okay, we're on live. Okay, so class sponsors. Yes. Class sponsors, anonymous, for the Rafushlam of Avram Ben Penina and <coughs> Rebecca Bat Julie. Also Hannah Ruth Bat Tauba. And in honor of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, blessed memory, and in memory of her parents, Tuvia Ben Chana and Tauba Bat Chaya, Zechrona also in honor of oh, Rabbi Lipchitz and her daughter and granddaughter. No, no, that, that would not be me. <laughs> I don't have a granddaughter. It's a separate one. Ah, okay. Bat Chana Ruth and Tova Rivka Bat And for Rafu Shlema Benachem Mendel Ben Sora Batya and Yaakov Ben Penina. Also, my own personal dedication. To uh, Arfu Shalema for Razel Bas Miriam and for Sterna Mezani Simcha Bas Tzivya. Okay. So, this week is Shabbat Hagadol. It's the Shabbat before Pesach. It's called the Big Shabbat. And uh, we're going to be dealing with Pesach this week. The title is The Art of Happiness, and the subtitle is Finding Infinity in the Details. Usually they say that something else lies in the details. <laughs> they say the devil lies in the details. That's a saying. But here we're saying the infinity is in the details. So, um, just that you know, um, the way we start off is we pick a modern-day subject, something that we deal with on the psychological level, usually. And then we'll dive into the deep mystical teachings of the Mimer, and then we'll come back and wrap it up by making it practical, okay? So, the modern-day issue. An entrepreneur and CEO of his many businesses once told me the following. If you want to see me get frustrated, talk to me about details. That's why I have company manager and project managers. Details. Details frustrates the broad-thinking person. For many people, happiness is synonymous with freedom, and freedom is synonymous with not having to deal with the details. The CEO personalities long for the day to be able to hire others for the suffocating and pesky details so that they be free to work on the big picture. There's a guy by the name of Michael Gerber, he was kind enough to have a group of Chabad rabbis that he worked with directly, and I was in that group. And uh, he actually is a small business guru. One of the books he wrote is E-Myth Revisited. And over there, there's links in the notes. In the email, you'll be able to click on the links and uh, if you want to see the book. He writes that the key, he, his whole book is, a, is about why do people open up businesses and most businesses, small businesses, close within the first two years, then there's three years, and by five years there's a minute percentage that survives. And that's what he works on. And his key rule is that the reason you're not working for someone else, but you went on to open up your own business, is to work on your business, not in your business. If you're working in your business, then you're working. You're not an entrepreneur. To be an entrepreneur, you need to be working on your business. And thus, the job of the CEO is to stay away from details. The job of the entrepreneur is to stay away from details. 
His job is to have the creativity, the vision, the tomorrow. His job is to have the big picture. And then you hand it over. So of course, you know, if you open up a business and you don't have a capital, so you have a pyramid of your entire infrastructure and your name is pretty much in every box. But the goal is to keep on moving your name out of the lower boxes, into the higher boxes, into the higher boxes, until you get to the top box. So the entrepreneur actually should not be working on details. He should be working on the all-encompassing vision of the business. Okay? So, the message here seems to be, once again, that happiness is the freedom from details. In this lecture, we are going to discover that while pleasure may lie, I'm sorry, while pleasure may lie in the freedom of details, however, happiness lies specifically in the details. We're going to separate the difference between happiness slash joy and pleasure. Yes, pleasure lies in the creativity, the free thinking, without getting into all the nitty-gritty. But joy, we're going to see why, specifically lies in working out all the details. Okay? So, this lecture is based on a mimer, a uh, Hasidic discourse that the Rebbe delivered in 1965, which focuses on the custom of reciting Shir Hashirim, this song of songs, on Passover. Exploring the connection of happiness with details. Oh my God. Hello. This is a pleasant surprise. Okay. Thank you. So we're talking about the Shir Hashirim. There are five books that are called Megillot. One Megillah we all know is Purim. Hi, hello. One, Purim, one book we all know, Megillah, is from the Purim, the Esther. There's another Megillah which is called Shir Hashirim, Book of Songs. So you have five of the, uh, three of the five Megillot were written by King Solomon. Ecclesiastics, Songs. I'm sorry, no, Lamentations was written by Jeremiah. That's about the destruction. Why am I missing one? Mishli, thank you. Oh my God, Proverbs. And then you have the book of Jeremiah, which was written by uh, the, the book of uh, Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah by the destruction of the temple. And you have the book of Esther, written by Esther. By some opinions, it's Esther and Mordechai. And more or less, we read those five throughout the year. Um, you know, you have also Ruth. You read the book of Ruth on Shavuos, because King David is her offspring. Um, and then on Pesach, you read the book of songs, Shir Hashirim. And the law, the custom is that you read it specifically on the Shabbat of the intermediate days. This year, that does not exist. This year, you don't have an intermediate Shabbat, right? The first Saturday is Friday, so the last days are Shabbat, and the intermediate days are weekdays. On such a year, there's a custom that you read it on the seventh day the seventh day of Pesach, okay? Now, the question is why? There's different reasons why you read the Book of Songs. I'm going to give you one of the mystical reasons, the one that the Rebbe of Blessed Memory chooses to, to um, explain in this discourse. So, Shir Hashirim is songs. Now, there is a specific teaching in the Talmud. We learned it out from a verse, and I quote it in here. It says as follows. 
From where is it derived that one only recites a song of praise in the temple over the libation of wine on the altar? So by the karbanot, you brought the sacrifice and then you had libations, oil and wine. On Sukkot, you used specially was water, but normally it was always wine. Now, there, the, the Talmud is talking about whether you can do songs of praise without the wine. And we learn out from the verse that says that wine gladdens God and man. And the question is, okay, I know wine can make people happy, but how does wine make God happy? From here we see that joy, happiness, song of praise over the altar is done with libation of wine. Okay? So too, we find that there's another teaching in the Talmud of Psachim that says that on holidays there is a mitzvah to have joy. How do you fulfill that mitzvah? So it says in the time of the Holy Temple you had special sacrifice because simcha was when you ate meat. You had a serious meal with a good steak. However, since the Holy Temple was destroyed, we don't have the temple, it says the depth of the flavor of meat doesn't exist no more. It went into the bones, that's what the Talmud says, rather than the meat. And therefore, since the destruction of the temple, the simcha, the joy, is connected to wine. Okay? That's the simple definition of the law. That's why on holiday you always have wine, you have the kiddush, and then there's those who have the custom that even on the days of Chalamod you drink one cup of wine. Because it's called Mikre Kodesh, it's called a holiday, and therefore you have it connected with wine. Now, with that being said, so Shir Hashirim is about song, song is about wine, and it's about joy. Now, holidays, we're going to talk about this in a moment. Holidays are different than Shabbat. Holidays is all about joy. And since it's about joy, so you have the law of holiday with joy. And which is the first of the holiday cycles? It's Pesach. It's Pesach. What difference does it make? It makes a difference that if you made a pledge to the Holy Temple, the Talmud says you have up to three holidays to pay it up. But which three holidays? So the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah says that Pesach, Nisan, is the Rosh Hashanah Lirigolim. It's the first of the holidays. So therefore we know that amongst the holidays itself, which is the Rosh Hashanah of holidays, which is the New Year of holidays, is Pesach. So now do the connection. Pesach is the head of the holidays. Holidays is connected to joy. Joy is connected to wine, right? Wine is connected to song, and thus Shira Shirin, which is songs, belongs on Pesach. That's one calculation. Then there's another calculation. Of all the holidays, which one has the true obligation of more than just one cup of wine? Pesach. You have the rabbinical ordination, the obligation to drink four cups of wine. So if song is connected with wine, so the Book of Songs should be read on Pesach. Okay? Now, with that being said, I want to just talk about why is wine connected to joy. So in Kabbalah, we're not talking about intoxication. <laughs> when I was uh, younger, so there was a guy, Nebuch, he was homeless, and he ended up in 770. 
he got to Lubavitch somehow, and he was a drunk. He, his nickname was Zalman the Shikr. And I got close with him. I tried to get him clothing, tried to get him food, my cousin and I, we kind of tried to adopt him, make sure, whatever. So he used to, he was a brilliant guy. He actually had songs and he was receiving, um, Royalties? No, what, what do you receive from songs? Royalties. Royalties, thank you. He was receiving royalties from songs. The whole story, he had a divorce, his kids didn't talk to him. To make the long story short, he used to tell me, I'm from me. So he used to talk, I'm from me. You know why people drink? I said, no, Zalman, why do people drink? He tells me to drown their sorrows. But you know what they don't know? Sorrows float. How is this lying to me? Sorrows what? Float. From a mystical point of view, wine doesn't bring out joy because it helps you forget your problems. So what from the mystical view does it mean? Here's an interesting teaching. Because the wine is hidden in the grape. And when that which was hidden reveals itself, it brings joy. Which leads me for a question here. Why doesn't oil bring joy? Oil is hidden in the olive. We reveal the oil from the olive. If revealing the hidden brings joy, we should get joyous from oil. So what's the difference between oil and olive according to the mystical reason of why we're happy with wine? The answer is going to take us to the difference between Shabbos and holidays and the difference between pleasure and joy and the difference between wisdom and understanding. So there are two different intellects. There's three intellects, right? The three lobes of your brain. In Hasidus, in Kabbalah, it refers to right side wisdom, left side is uh, understanding, and the back side, the, the back is knowledge. To understand this, that is why you say people who are right brainers are artistic, wisdom. People who are left brainers are more analytical because that's what Bina is. Wisdom and understanding are completely different intellects. Just understand how wisdom works. I'm going to give you an example. It's not in my notes because I didn't want to write it down again. I gave it to you once before. Wisdom is if you ask someone a riddle and they're thinking and they're thinking and they're thinking and they jump. Why did they jump? They got it. Okay, you got it. Tell me, tell me the answer to the riddle. The next words out of the mouth is confusing. Well, one second, let me figure it out. What do you mean? You just, I saw your face light up. Yeah, I, I hop, I hop the, the, but I don't really have it. So I have to work it out. We call that in Kabbalah and in Hasidus, that is the drop from the intellectual soul, from the power of wisdom into our mind. Thus, the power of wisdom is different than the power of understanding because the power of wisdom is shed, get rid of the details, get rid of the details. I want to find that nucleus. I want to find that one all-encompassing concept from which this entire intellectual concept is built. That's how, under, that's how wisdom works. That's why wisdom, that's why wisdom is, is referred to in Kabbalah as sight, seeing. Understanding as hearing. I can't hear more than one word at a time. I see the whole picture in one shot. 
So the power of wisdom is really the power of getting past the details into the soul of the concept. I want to understand that one chap of this whole intellectual concept. In other words, wisdom is about finding the essence of the intellectual concept. Understanding is all about the extrapolation of the three dimensions of intellect. The three dimensions of intellect, like in every three dimension, is what? Width, length, and depth. Width is to make it details, details, details. Length is to bring it down. Another parable, another example. You can't teach things to, to preschoolers the way you teach it to college students. You know, all of a sudden mathematics becomes eight slices and you took your eight, two slices, two out of eight, how many you have left. It's very different than teaching physics. It's a different way. So that's the length, bringing it down. The depth is refining it, finer and finer and finer and splitting hairs and splitting hairs. Okay? That's what understanding is all about. Understanding is extrapolating out of that one dot of wisdom all the details in three dimensions. Thus, wisdom is a general rule and understanding is all the particulars. That's the difference between wisdom and understanding. Now you understand that joy doesn't lie in the one chap. I want you, I, you know, I was trying to draw the picture when I was working in the class. Have you ever noticed what state of being you are when you're having pleasure? So let's talk about finer pleasure. You're listening to music. Or, as a parent, there's nothing more pleasurable when you see that your children for a change are not fighting. Obviously you notice, wow, they're actually getting along, they're playing. What, what goes on in you when you have pleasure? When you have pleasure to music, I'm talking about fine music, I'm not talking about no Lady Gaga. You're sitting back and you almost like go inwards and feel a wholesomeness. Joy is not like that. When you feel, correct, inward, wholesomeness. When you're experiencing joy, you're outwards. People that are joyous become boisterous. They want to dance. They want to conquer. They want to overcome. There's a huge difference between pleasure and joy. Pleasure comes from creativity. Pleasure comes from the novelty of creativity where you're just like, wow. It's a pleasure. You finish putting together a lecture and wow, this is a new concept. I, I, you're feeling pleasure. You don't want to get up and dance. You actually just sit back and like, mm, that was nice. Joy is not pleasure. Wisdom is the house of pleasure. Creativity, don't bother me with the details. I want the aha moment. The aha moment is not in details. Understanding is where joy exists. Okay? 
Let's talk about this for a moment. What, according to Kabbalah, is the essence of almost every vegetable and herb and plant? Oil. You can make oil almost out of anything, including grapes. You have cottonseed oil. So when you're talking about bringing out the oil from the olive, you're talking about a wisdom process. You're talking about bringing out essence. When you bring out essence, you're talking about pleasure. You're not talking about joy. Thus, oil from olives does not represent joy in Kabbalah. While bringing out the wine from a grape, that's already understanding. By the way, in Kabbalah, it gets even more nitty-gritty about this. And that's why it's so much harder to squeeze oil out of an olive. You have to crush it, not like a grape. You just press a grape. It's two different levels. Okay? Okay, so now we're talking about the difference between pleasure and joy, wisdom and understanding. Joy is connected to wisdom. I'm sorry. Pleasure is connected to wisdom. Joy is connected to understanding. Now we'll understand something else. You're familiar that in a lot of, in a lot of uh, communities, they do it specifically for women, interesting, more than for men, and sometimes they do it for kids. They have something called Oneg Shabbos, right? You're familiar with those groups? Oneg Shabbos. Usually every time it's a different home, and they prepare some stuff, and they come, they have a couple of words of Torah, but it's not that much about the learning, really. It's Oneg Shabbos. Let's, let's sit together. Yontiv, what do you call Yontiv? You never use the word Oneg Yontiv, it's Simchas Yontiv. Now you understand why. Because according to Kabbalah, Shabbos is the revelation of wisdom, it's about Oneg, while Yontiv is the revelation of understanding, and that's why it's about Simcha, joy. So you see now the two lines, okay? You have pleasure, which is connected to wisdom, which is connected with getting to the essence of something. You have wine, joy, understanding, details. That's a different category. We're talking about not Shabbos, we're talking about Yontiv. So we're talking about revealing the details, the simcha, the joy. And we now understand from the Kabbalistic definition of the grapes that the joy is by revealing the details, extrapolating the details. Okay? Okay, I think we covered all the uh, introductions and now we can go to the actual lecture. Okay, so we're going to list some Kabbalistic details. Yeah. Oh, we don't have no more? Okay, I'm sorry. So we have over here the, um, the Kabbalistic details that we're going to discuss, and then we'll, we'll, bring, we'll come back to this concept. Number one, three matzot and four cups of wine. The number three and the number four. Why are there three matzot and four cups of wine? The whole four cups of wine is extrapolated from the four languages of Exodus, right? In the book of Shemot. It doesn't have to be wine. 
Could have been four matzahs. Right? The matzahs are to represent the three parts of our people. Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. Could have had three cups of wine. And the second cup, you'll drink in two halves. Just like you break the second matzah. So why is it three, cup, three matzot and four cups of wine? Okay? The next, by the way, another thing to know is, eating matzah is biblical. The verse clearly says, and you shall eat matzah and moror with your sacrifice. Wine is rabbinical. The four cups of wine is not biblical, it's rabbinical. Okay? Next thing. The definition of oral law. There's the written law, Torah Shebektav, and there's Torah Shebapeh, the oral law. In the oral law, we're going to discover the infinity of details. There's an infinity within details. The next thing we're going to talk about is, you know that the 613 commandments break into two categories, right? There is 248 thou shall do, and there's 360 Five, thou shalt not do. Right? So you have thou shalt not work on Shabbat. And then you have the thou shalt for men put on tefillin. Or whatever it may be. There's the do's and the don'ts. Okay? I'm sorry? So now you have, we're going to talk about mystically what's the difference between the two. Then we're going to talk about happiness built on humility. Okay? Because seemingly there's a contradiction. Pleasure seems to be more humble. You're in yourself, you're this. While joy is expansion and expression. Okay? Okay, let's begin. Let's talk about the three matzot and the four cups of wine. Okay? So normally we talk about that pleasure is greater than joy. Pleasure is higher than joy. When we talk about the levels of the soul, we talk about the ten faculties, which is three intellects and seven emotions. And then we talk about the crown, the corona, the skull. And over there we're talking about the two dimensions. You have pleasure, and the other one is will. For today we're going to call it joy. Okay? Now, in this concept we're saying that joy is greater than pleasure. Right? Even though wisdom is higher than understanding... Pleasure comes from wisdom and joy comes from understanding. So pleasure should be higher than wisdom. That pleasure should be higher than joy. In this class, we're focusing on the power of joy. Why so? And the difference I already hinted to you. When you want to talk about your inner state of wholesomeness, pleasure is greater than joy. If you want to talk about the power to go out... If you want to talk the power of overcoming obstacles, joy is where you need to go. When a person is in a state of joy, he or she is able to overcome obstacles from within and from without. It's a drive. Pleasure wants, you just want to stay. You just want to be. Joy is a drive. Most people, when they're happy, they want to do something. They want to go somewhere. When you're in a state of pleasure, you know, okay. Have a nice small gin and tonic and at home and comfortable and kick up your feet. And you're in a state of pleasure. Right? So when we talk about the power of external expression, we're talking about the power of joy. Now, I wanted to share with you. When we talk about, 
Why joy has a higher power? Do you remember we shared about the mirror reflection of the, of the spiritual and the physical, of the higher and the lower? In a mirror reflection, that which is higher ends up lower. Thus, precisely because understanding, i.e. joy, is lower, we now know that it comes from higher. And that's why it has the power not only for within, but also from the outside. That's why joy has a power that pleasure doesn't have, and you can overcome obstacles. Okay? Now, that's what it says in Kabbalah, that in the supernal crown there's two layers. There's the external layer called long faces, and there's the inner layer called the ancient one. When it says about which comes from which, it says that understanding, bina ba'atik talia. Understanding is actually sourced in the inner dimension of the keter, the supernal crown, while wisdom is in the external. That is the reason why the power of bina is greater than the power of chachma. Understanding is greater than wisdom, even though in most places in Hasidus, you're going to find it the other way around. Today we're going to get into what is the power of details, what is the power of understanding. Okay? So far so good? Okay. Let's go further then. Let's talk about the number three, and let's talk about biblical versus the number four and the rabbinical. So at the Seder, from a mystical point of view, it says, Niskarim v'na'asim. It's remembered what was done, but not what Arizal says. Arizal says, read that more carefully. It says, remembered and done. Which means that through us remembering, through doing the mitzvot of the holiday, we are reenacting it once again. Thus, Passover is not the exodus that happened in the year 2448, some 3,300 years ago, but rather this year we're going to have a Pesach that we never had before. Thus, by the Seder, according to Kabbalah, we are actually reenacting what happened in that first Passover on the spiritual level. Thus, I'm going to talk to you about the matzah being the embodiment of the power, the revelation of wisdom, while the wine is going to be the power and the revelation of understanding. Just break for a moment. It's not in my notes, but I'm just sharing this with you. Exile happens in the levels of emotions. Those are the seven. That's is transcendent beyond emotions. Exodus comes from intellect in Kabbalah language. So the number seven is the seven emotions. That's where feelings happens. That's where nature happens. That's where cause and effect happens. And there's the one leads into the other. When we talk about the experience of transnatural, which is why Shabbat is called holy, because you have wisdom shining. And holiday is called holy because we have understanding shining. When those emanations, the primordial, not the seven emotions, but the primordial are manifesting themselves and revealing themselves, you're going beyond nature. So by the Seder, the key things we're talking about tonight is 
the four cup, the four cups of wine, and the three matzot. Now, here, let me share with you something. I didn't put this in my notes either, but I'm going to share it with you. Have Have you ever seen carefully the headpiece of your tefillin? Yeah. There's a three-headed shin and there's a four-headed shin. Halachically, the real, it's not a four-headed shin. Halachically, we don't know if you're supposed to have it bulge out or you're supposed to have it engraved. So if you look at the four-headed shin and don't look at the shin, look in between the lines, you have three. In Kabbalah, there's something greater than that, which is why you have the four boxes, not three boxes. The job of putting on tefillin on a spiritual level is all about drawing the higher intellects into your emotions down to your actions. So that's right here, your tefillin. Here and here. Intellect, motion, action. Okay? Now, in intellects, there's three and there's four. In the realm of wisdom, there are three intellects, which is wisdom, understanding, knowledge, which is going to divide as that spark, the chap, working out the details, and then taking it to the next level. What am I going to do about this? The emotions. Okay? In the realm of understanding, there are four intellects. How can you have four intellects? The answer is that we shared that understanding is about working out the details. When you work out the details clearly, you can't have true feelings from a chap. A one-flash creativity doesn't give you true feelings. It's warm, it's fuzzy, but the true feelings are in the details. If I truly understand and I truly work out the process extrapolation of all the details then I can get emotional about it therefore in the realm of understanding there's four intellects not three because the intellect of knowledge breaks into two because it already became the source of emotion of kindness love and the source of the other primary emotion which is fear strength Strictness, justice. So in the realm of wisdom, we're not there yet. You know we're close to having real emotions. You're excited, oh wow, wow, but you're not, it's not real emotions yet. On that level, you only have three intellects. On the level of understanding, when you work out the details, you truly understand the entire picture with all its details and ramifications and outcomes and, and, and details and all of it, then you're already in a place to say, I'm attracted or I'm stepping away. I love or I fear. That happens in understanding. Thus the wine, which is understanding, how many cups do you have? Four. The matzah, which is wisdom, how many do you have? Three. Okay? There's another note I want to point out. I want to talk about the rabbinical versus the biblical. What is the definition of biblical? Simply speaking, for this class, the biblical is the written law. The written law makes up the 24 books of Tanakh. Tanakh is made up of three parts. The Torah, the five books of Moses, the prophets, and the scriptures. 
that equals 24 books, that is the written law. What is rabbinical? Rabbinical is the extrapolation of it, and that is the oral law. Primarily, that's the Mishnah, the Brighter, and the rulings. That's what makes up what we know as the Talmud. I want to give you a metaphor that's in Kabbalah. When we talk about wisdom, we talk about the male, the father. When we talk about understanding, we talk about the feminine. Why? Think about the process of having a child. The father gives over what? Gives over the sperm, the semen. What's in the semen? Nothing but the entire DNA ladder is there. That's the chap, the nekuda. What is the job of the woman, the mother? During the gestation period, she is reading all those hidden details and making it happen. Extrapolate, right? So in comes a semen with a DNA ladder, out goes an entire full child, a three-dimensional child with all the details. Now let's look at the oral law and the written law. In the written law, there's a verse. Let's just pick one. Thou shalt not work on Shabbat. Do you know anything about that law now? What is work? What are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? If not for the Talmud tractic Shabbos, extrapolating all the details, what is work? Craftsmanship work. What is craftsmanship work? It has five properties. How does that break down into 39 categories? Without that happening in the Talmud, I don't know what to do. Let's talk about putting on tefillin. It says, you shall bind upon your hand and write your head. We have no idea what tefillin looks like. If not for the Talmud in tractic menachis, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. This goes on and on and on. You're not allowed to eat an animal if you didn't slaughter it. Where in the Torah does it tell you anything about the five primary laws of what makes slaughter, slaughtering a kosher slaughtering or not? So in one word in the verse, the verse is so concise, so short, so brief, because it is the semen of God. The entire DNA of the will of God, all 613 commandments, is in there. But it's not. It's there, just like the DNA ladder is in the sperm. But you're not getting anywhere. Thus comes along the gestation process of the Talmud. And what does it do? It takes that one verse and gets into the DNA and starts extrapolating. So we're having over here that the Biblical law represents the 24 books of the written law. The rabbinical ordinance represents the entire process of the Talmud, the extrapolation. Now I want to share with you, that's why when we talk about wisdom, the written law, the matzah, it's biblical. When we talk about the empowerment of the emanation, the intellect of understanding, we're talking about rabbinical, the oral law. Thus you have three matzahs, biblical, and you have four cups of wine, 
rabbinical. So far, so good? Yeah? I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. I'm in pain, so I'm not, I'm not able to really read your eyes. And, and I'm just, so tell me if there's something that's not working right. Okay? Let's take it to the next level. There's one more detail on the difference between the biblical and the rabbinical, i.e. the written law and the oral law. In the written law, there's a precise amount of verses. We even know exactly how many letters, 300,000 something of letters, 300, 308, 305, or 305, 308, that there is letters in the Torah. There is no adding on. You can't write, oh, you know what, let's write another book. While in the oral law, there is consistently people working on responsa, questions, commentary. The written law is not infinite. It's infinite in quality, but it's not infinite in quantity. It isn't the experience of the infinite. While when we talk about the oral law, there you're talking about the infinite amount of details that's being extracted from the specific brief and precise verse. Thus I want to share with you an interesting teaching of our sages. I'm going to read it to you, okay? The sages tell us there's a verse in the book of songs, Shira Shira, that says as follows, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and innumerable maidens. That's what the verse says. It's right there, chapter 6, verse 8. Now, obviously, you know that King Solomon is talking about the relationship between us and God. That's what the whole book of songs is. It's a, it's a, love, it's a love song all about the husband and the wife, the husband being God and the wife being us. So the sages want to know, what, what, what's he talking about? 60, 80, and then what's he talking about? So he says like this. It's on page 4 in the, in the third paragraph. He says as follows. The, the Medrash says, it's a Shir Shirim Rabbah. 60, these are the Mishnayot. 80 concubines, these are the bright thoughts. Let me just tell you what the bright thought is. The Mishnah was written by one man, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He's an offspring of the great Hillel. He was the leader at the time of uh, the beginning of the, um, after the destruction. He's, he was the one, he had great connections with Romans. He was the leader of the Jewish people. And he was the one that said, if we don't document the oral law now that we have the destruction of the temple and we're going into exile, we're going to lose it. So even though you're not supposed to write the written, you're not supposed to write the oral, he said it's time to write the oral. So he created it in six orders. Each order breaks into tractics. Each tractics breaks into chapters. Each chapter breaks into a Mishnah. That's the Mishnayot. He would bring his own book to the yeshiva and he would read one of his own Mishnayot. Now, if you know Mishnayot, primarily they're case law. So therefore, you have to extrapolate and understand why the case law is there. Why is it this way? And he would go ahead and explain, explain, explain. He would have students, famous ones, Rabkhiya, and they would write notes. Those notes became the brighter. Later, when Rav Ashi came along and he made up the Talmud, the Talmud is primarily... You take a Mishnah, you quote the brightest and ask questions and extrapolate the law. So you have the Mishnah, the brighter, and the Halakha. 
So now we'll understand. The mission, the Medrash says like this. 60 are the Mishnayot, 80 concubines are the bright taught, innumerable ma maidens is the final rulings, the halachot. So what you're watching here is that in the evolution of time, as we're moving further and further away from the written law in time, from Mount Sinai, as the sages are becoming more and more the interpretation, you're getting more and more infinite and infinite. 60, 80 to infinite, right? Now the question is, how can the sages create an infinitism, if that's a word, infinity, from the finite written law? Okay? So let's understand that. Here's the interesting law. There's a rule in Kabbalah. Simplicity defies details, complexity. Ultimate simplicity is where complexity comes from. Let's go over that again, okay? The simplicity that denies complexity is a pretty weak simplicity. It's the external outer layer of simplicity. Let's talk about this very simply. If two friends can't have differences of opinion and be friends, that's a pretty weak friendship. It's quite because the strength of the relationship allows for the details and the complexity within the details. Ultimately speaking, the fact that there could be an infinite amount of details and within them polar opposites is only because of the ultimate simplicity of oneness of the essence. I want to talk about this in another level. When you're not connected, this is not in my notes, but I, now I'm already focusing on your eyes. I'm like, what's he saying? All right, let's talk about this, okay? The person who's not in touch with his true inner self can only be one person. I can only do this, don't bother me, this is the way I do it, this is the way I work, and that's it. A person that can get deeper within themselves can handle many hats, right? The person who has touched the essence of his or her being can have infinity obligations. I'm not talking about the time-wise, but it doesn't create a fractured person. When a person tells you, oh, I can't deal with it. I'm a rabbi, I'm a father, I'm a mama this, I'm a dad, and blah, it's just too much, I can't deal with it. It's because I'm not in touch with my inner self, and therefore every new detail means I have to crack off another piece of myself, and there's nothing left of me, okay? The person who knows on the inside who they are, that inside never changes. It just manifests itself in when you're a father, when you're a rabbi, when you're whatever it is. Right? It's who you are, doesn't change, expresses itself. But even that level, there's what I could and what I can't do. Isaac was, uh, Abraham was a man of kindness. When God asked him to sacrifice his son, that's not just like a million a million stars of, of, of kindness. 
Now we're going to a total different picture. So yes, Abraham is able to pray for the people of Sodom, even though he has a problem with evil. But to go ahead and do the opposite means that we have to really, really, really get to the core essence of the being. And when I'm a core essence of a being, so a prince is a prince even in prison. Now here you have the ultimate antithesis. A prince, a prisoner. But when you get to the core of your being, you're a prince not because you're in the palace, you're a prince because you're a prince. So therefore you're a prince in the palace, you're a prince in the, in the prison. You're a prince when you have to take care of royal issues, you're a prince when you have to take care of less than royal issues. You are with your core being. Thus in Kabbalah, the details, the complexity of details, the infinite complexity of details, is the ultimate connection and embodiment of the ultimate essence, simplicity, oneness. Thus we're now understanding on a deeper level why wisdom only connects me to the external dimension of the Keter, the supernal crown, while Bina, understanding, connects me to the internal dimension. It's precisely because Bina has so many details Therefore, it must have the connection with the ultimate inner simplicity of oneness within the essence of my being. The essence of my being in its simplicity oneness really doesn't care if I'm mopping the floor or if I'm writing a class. It is. It will be what it is. The to be or not to be doesn't change no matter what you're doing. Thus, we now understand that Bina is higher than Chachma. Understanding is higher than wisdom. And the details is higher than the thought. I want to take it to another level. Sometimes you listen to something. You're working on something. And you're asking yourself, well, what's the, what get me to the, to the point of it? Delphine will remember. <laughs> I was graced to go with Delphine to the museum. We want, I wanted to learn about art. That's, I was driving Delphine crazy. So what's the difference between the dot one and the, the stroke one? And this level and that level? It was all a bunch, of, a bunch of... I couldn't get it. I need to put boxes here. Which one belongs where? If you're an artist by nature, you can actually see that they're all the same expression of art, expressed differently. When I am starting to study something, and I don't get it, I don't get it. I, yeah, I hear it. I hear what you're saying. 2 plus 2 is 4, 4 plus 4 is 8, I get it. But I don't get it. I, I can't wrap my hand around the most inner core of what you're trying to tell me. So wisdom says, let go. Let go. Don't engage. Let go. Shed. Shed, shed, shed. Forget the details. Forget starting to ask contradictions, questions. Don't. Let go. And let the core essence come to you. That's what wisdom says. Understanding is, oh my God, now we're going to have to go through all the details and work it out, and the long hand, and the short hand, and da-da-da, and mishige. 
But let me ask you a question. After you finished all the details, the three dimensions with depth and, 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 and length, you understand all the ramifications, the extrapolations of all the infinite amount of details of this issue. And then you sit back and you say, okay, what is that one soul of this entire topic? That dot is going to be very different than the original dot. The original dot had to negate details. It was getting in the way. The last dot is actually finding that oneness in all these details in which you have polar opposites and an infinite amount. Therefore, in the first dot, while you have the entire DNA ladder there, but in the second dot, you have what we call Merchav Atzmi, the essence broadness, the true infinite broadness of the dot. Thus we now understand that the power of details, if I can only find inner wholesomeness in a lack of details, keep me out of it. Just discuss with me the main issue and then go work it out. I really don't care what color, what this, what that, leave me alone. That's wisdom. But if I can go ahead and see in all the details the way it's an expression of that one and only inner core of my beingness, then I've reached the infinite power of the simplicity of oneness of the essence of my soul. Now we're talking about the inner part of the crown, not the outer part of the crown. Now we're understanding why wisdom is greater, I'm sorry, why understanding is greater than wisdom and why joy is more powerful than pleasure. When you're in a moment of pleasure, you can very quickly be shaken from it, from external things. When you're in joy, it's easier to say, ah, let it go, let it go. It's okay, let it go. Okay? Now, with that being said, I want to take you to another power. The power of an interesting teaching. Chavivin alai, chamurim alai, divre soifrim medivre Torah. The sages quote God for saying, Chaviv, it is more precious to me and it is more stringent to me the words of the sages than my own words of the Torah. To God, the oral law, our work of extrapolation is far more precious and greater to Him than His work of the 24 books of the Torah. Why? What is the power of the words of the sages? I hear what you're saying, joy, understanding, but come on, our words are more precious than God's words? I understand the father loves the child more than he loves himself. But bottom line, really, our words are greater than God's words? More precious? To be more strict with? So for that, to understand that, I need to take you to one more level. The thou shalls and the thou shall nots. All commandments are what? 
Why do you do mitzvot? There's only one reason really why you do mitzvot. Yeah, every mitzvah has its own message. The Shabbos candles bring peace. Uh, the tefillin brings intellect. And charity brings kindness and benevolence. But ultimately speaking, if I asked you give me one reason why you do any mitzvah, what's the answer? It's the will of God. Right? So it makes no difference if God tells me swing a chicken around your head before Yom Kippur, or if God tells me to go save a life. Ultimately speaking, if I'm doing it not as a humanitarian, I'm doing it because I'm here to serve God, then thy will, not mine, be done, and it makes no difference what your will is. Right? So all the 613 commandments is all one thing. The Torah is here to teach me the commandments, to teach me the will of God, and the commandments are the will of God. Yet there's something very different. When I talk about the positive commandments, thou shalt do, you're taking an active engagement in bringing the will of God into the universe. We are finite beings. We're doing finite actions. By the way, there's an actual law. Exactly how much matzah you have to eat. Did you do the mitzvah? Didn't you do the mitzvah? How much wine do you have to drink? Was it more than three ounces? Less than three ounces? Everything has details, right? So whenever I have a doing mitzvah, it's very precise. If I did it right, I did it. And if I didn't do it right, I didn't do it. And a lot of people, like a really rabbi, oh come on, just because one letter was cracked in the Torah, so the whole thing, the mitzvah of reading the Torah wasn't there, or the mezuzah isn't kosher, and if I held the asterisk upside down by mistake, I didn't do the mitzvah in Sukkot, right? We have all these questions, yeah. Because when God's will manifests itself within time and space, it is defined perfectly within time and space. This it is, and this it is not. No, comes a question. How can a finite action draw in the infinite will? Right? So the answer is that you're right. When you're talking about the doing of, of a mitzvah, you're talking about a very specific ray of God's will. And that ray, I'm going to call it for right now, a finite expression of His infinite will. Thus, I can wrap my hand around it as a finite human being doing a finite action in a finite specific time. You did it too early, not kosher. Did it too late, not kosher. Did it on time, did it right. We're going to tonight eat matzah. You didn't do the mitzvah. Right? You have to wait. Next Friday night. That's because it's a finite ray of his infinite will. Comes along Kabbalah and says, when the Torah tells you, don't do, thou shall not. What are your finite, my finite fingerprints on this mitzvah? By getting out of the way, not doing. Right? So engaging my capacity, my limitations, is very involved in dominating. Not doing, to quote our sages, shev the altase, sit and don't do. That's pretty much allowing for the infinite to play. It's not stuck in my capacity. I'm going to give you just a wild example. What's the difference if you put water into an 8-ounce cup or if you put an 8-ounce cup into the ocean? 
When you're putting water into the 8-ounce cup, you cannot put 8.5 ounces. When you put the cup into the ocean, the ocean can be as big as it wants. The positive commandment is putting it into the cup. Finite, finite, finite. Finite human doing a finite action, being internal, internalizing a finite ray. Not doing allows for everything. Thus in Kabbalah you say that the positive commandments of thou shall is the finite linear will of God, while the infinite thou shall not do allows for a connection with the infinite circular essence will. You can't do something. The best you can do is not do. And by not doing, you're allowing for infinite to flow by. Because not doing is a doing. Let's talk about this, right? Right now, are you eating non-kosher this second? No. So do you get a mitzvah for not eating non-kosher? Simply speaking, according to the sages, right now, if you're not tempted, no. I work by Burger King, and they open the door, and those fries come smiling at me. I haven't eaten for two hours. That costs a tenth of the price of the kosher french fries. I really want to eat that. God, this one's for you. I'm not eating it. So the not is a moment of connection. I am connecting with you, God. But because I'm connecting by not doing, it's not putting the light in the cup, and it can only be as big as the cup, but rather I'm putting the cup in the light. Thus it's circular. Thus I'm bringing the encompassing circular light, which now encompasses me, the doer, and the universe. Make sense? Okay? So there's a plus and there's a minus. There's a plus to the do because you internalize it. You become different. There's a plus to the not do because it's not limited to what you could or can't be. By the way, in studying Torah, it's the same thing. There's the positive perception of I know what this is. I'm studying this halakha. I know what it is. I know what my relationship with God is. Then there's the negative perception, and I don't mean negative, negative perception like we talk negative. I'm talking about like a picture, the positive and the negative. There's the negative in which I don't know what it is. At best, I know what it's not. What are you doing here? I'm getting my finite grip of my mind out of the way. I'm allowing it to be what I don't understand. All I do know is, that it's not this. Let's talk about this. Do I know what God is? No. But I know that God isn't something that has a beginning and an end. I know that God doesn't have a descriptive form. You see, I'm talking about what it isn't. That allows for me to connect to a God which is far greater than any God that I can say I know what it is. Thus, the positive, it internalizes. When I know what God is, I can have a personal relationship with God. When I only know what He's not, it's hard for me to pray not knowing who's on the other side of the phone. Right? But on the other hand, this is infinite and this is finite. Okay? That's the way it works. I'm sorry? I have a question. Yeah. 
Are you okay if we, if I, I ask you to hold it till the end? Yeah. Okay, thank you. This is the way, it, we're almost finished. This is the way it is in the biblical world. Not in the rabbinical world. The rabbinical world has the magic of allowing me to draw even the circular, infinite, encompassing light into a finite vessel. How? Let's talk about this. All biblical laws have to be made of kosher, light, inside, right? You can make tefillin out of kosher hide. You can't make tefillin out of pork skin, right? Now here's a perfect example. The menorah. When you light the menorah in the holy temple, it's lit inside the temple, it's lit by daytime, right? Our menorah of Hanukkah is not a biblical law. It can't be a biblical law. It happened after the last books of the prophets and the scriptures were, were done. So therefore, the lighting the menorah is a, is a rabbinical law. The whole purpose of this rabbinical law is to commemorate the biblical law of the menorah in the temple. And yet explain this to me. You have to light the menorah after nightfall. You have to, you're supposed to light it on the outside of your doorpost and you're supposed to light it on the left side, not on the right side. This is the arena of the thou shall nots. Darkness, outside, left. The arena of the thou shells is inside, light, and on the right. Thus you see that the sages have the power to have us digest, not just to be compassed, encompassed, but to digest and internalize the infinite circular. And now you understand why. Because what did we say before about the essence broadness? What did we say about the power of from where the complexity of all details come from? It comes from the ultimate essence. From the perspective of the ultimate essence, you can fit infinite into an eight ounce cup. From the point of the ultimate essence, is God any more in the spiritual than in the physical? Is he any more infinite than he's finite? Thus, because the sages with their extrapolation of the infinite details have connected us to the ultimate simplicity oneness of the essence thus we can even internalize and engage with an action in the arena of the thou shall nots thus on a mystical level this is the ultimate power of joy This is the ultimate power of understanding. This is the ultimate power of not being afraid of details. It won't rob you of who you are. It'll actually heighten and deepen your appreciation of who you are. So far so good? Yeah, I know exactly why you're laughing. Delphine, did you ever see a mathematician turn into a triangle? Okay.
There's one more point I want to share. It's really late, so I just want to get to this really quickly. I'm sorry. The power of the essence is all about humility, self-negation. The more you have I defined, this is what I am and this is what I'm not, you're not in the essence. Thus, if you want to talk about connecting with the infinite essence, the infinite simplicity, oneness of the essence, the one thing we should need to be doing is humility, self-negation. What did we say joy is? The exact opposite. Expression and expansion. He's dancing on the table. How does that fit? So I want to just clarify for a quick moment what the definition of humility was, is. The Torah tells us to be humble. What is the Torah telling us to be? To focus on what kind of piece of garbage we are. From dust you came, to dust you shall go, and in between you're just a pain in the neck. What are we supposed to think about? How fragile, how disgusting, how egocentric we are? That's humility? No. How do we know no? Because there's a verse in the Torah that says, and this man Moses was the most humble person of all the people on the face of the earth. Moshe Rabbeinu did not have an issue with self-worth. We see it in the Torah. He stood up when he had to. And he made very clear what's yes and what's no. What will be tolerated and what won't be tolerated. So the definition of humility is actually I realize my gifts and my talents. But I realize that I have them as a gift by the grace of God, unearned. I didn't earn to be born with the type of mind I have or the type of gifts I have, and none of us around the table really did. And whether it be nurture and nature, you didn't pick which nature to be born to, and you didn't pick which nurture to be brought up in. Thus, ultimately speaking, all our gifts and talents, to quote Rush Limbaugh, sorry, Republican, <laughs> talent on a loan from God. Now, where's the humility? Once you realize it's not mine, it's a gift of God, you also realize something else. What would happen if someone else did have my talents? What happened if God gave someone else my gifts and my talents? <laughs> Would they still be fighting a rented place on the third floor in some building that they really can't stand that you have kids in the building? Or what if they already built an entire community with a mikvah, with 300 people coming for shul, Shabbos, coming, going, kindness, studying? Thus, the fact that it's not mine, plus the fact that someone else with it would have done so much more, means that I'm humble not because of my worthlessness but precisely because of my worth. If I really feel that I'm a nobody and a piece of garbage, that's not humility. What's to be humble about? You are what you are. But if you embrace the image of God you have and the precise gifts and talents that you have and you realize that that's unearned, and you didn't use it to its fullest potential that someone else would, 
then you're not too busy being too haughty over the little couple of things that you did do. This is the humility of joy. This is the humility of embracing the essence in all our details. Thus, joy is needed. Joy comes from the details, not from the, yeah, I am, no, work it out, the details, and do it humbly. And now let's close up the class. Ooh. By the way, just on a practical note, what stops joy? What's the one hindrance to joy? Ego. I think I'm better than you. Therefore, I think I deserve more than you. I'm entitled. So explain to me why you're living in a three-bedroom condominium and I'm driving around with a, a taranta. How can I be happy? I'm being cheated. But if I can see that we're all equal in the face of God. By the way, our sages say, when it says that Moses was humble in the face of all people, including Gentiles. Moses, the one that went up to heaven, brought the Jews, the Torah, created the Jewish nation. He was humble to every Gentile. Every Gentile means, even if the guy was a crook and a drunk. How? I mean, read the verse. He was humble in the face of every single person on the face of the earth. Why would Moses be humble, feel humble, in front of someone who's living his life with, you know, he works to drink and drinks to work and works to drink, and that's it. The answer is because if he's able to see where everything comes from, where do details come from? Details come from the deepest inner essence of God. So on that level, we're all equal. Don't tell me what you do. Tell me who you are. And who you are is not what you do. It's where you come from. Ultimately, you come from God. And thus, in that level, we're all equal. Regardless of religion. Regardless of whether you do good or do bad. That's the way it manifested itself down here. Up there, Jacob and Esau were identical twins. Down here, one was a Shmendrik and one was a Tzaddik. Thus, Jacob can look Esau in the eyes and feel humble. Because ultimately, we're all equal. Now, let's wrap it up. Okay. Let's just rethink. What we originally thought about happiness being the freedom of details. The freedom of details allowing us to transcend into pure creativity of an all-encompassing vision affords us the warm inner feeling of pleasure. However, this is the experience of the lower oneness of the essence of our soul and being for it denies being able to carry itself through all the complexity of the details and thus through the practicality of our lives. Happiness comes when there is an inner congruency of the complexity of our being with the simple oneness of the essence of our souls and being. Actually, we need to even be able to curb that amazing feeling of intensity and power of pleasure from the outer essence of our souls in order to be able to roll up our sleeves and work through the complexity of details into the joy of a far more wholesome self of the inner essence of our being 
in which every detail of ourselves, our lives, and our universe embraces equally. That made sense? That last point, understanding what's going on? Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Don't, don't, don't bother the details right now. Just enjoy the moment. Yeah, that's great. But that's not the greatest. The greatest is, okay, I enjoy this. Now let's carry it through to fruition. That's when it's the real dream. Thank you.